Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. So today I want to share a message with you entitled, The Intimacy of Prayer. The intimacy of prayer. I want to talk about what happens in your life when you are able to communicate with God and have a relationship with God that isn't just religious, but that's something genuine, that's something authentic, that's something deep, where you get to express your heart uh, to God in, in a way that is open and honest. Prayer is intimacy. It's connected to the absolute depths of who we are and what we believe, our identity and our faith. The question we've been asking is, how do we get to live life at its best? Not just materially rich, not just circumstantially happy, but a life that is deep, a life that is rich, a life that is mature, a life that has impact, that has meaning. I don't think God created us and then said, let's create man in our image and woman in our image so that they can go ahead and live hollow lives, so that they can run after shallow things and and be mildly satisfied with life. I don't think that was God's intention in creating us. He had more for us. He wanted us to live lives full of meaning and living from the place of truth that God created us to live from. And we see so much of this in the life of Jeremiah. We've started the series by looking at how the first thing that God did was speak to Jeremiah about his identity. So Jeremiah began to know who he was in God, that he was called, that he was purposed, that God had a plan for his life. And in that process, he was invited to participate in God's plan for his life. That's true for all of us. You're not just here by random accident. You're not just here, you know, because, just because. You're here because God ordained for you to be here. Every one of your days was ordained before there was even one of them. And when God decided that he wanted you to be and how he wanted you to be, he began to speak a calling into your life. Good works that God created for you beforehand to walk in. And we begin to live our best lives when we discover this and begin participating in it. It's the most fulfilling thing we can do. But in order to begin pursuing the right things, we must first see the vision that God has for our lives. Because it's so easy to be blinded by the pursuits of the world around us. Everybody else is pursuing things that they say will make you happy. And we've got to have not just our physical eyes open to see the world around us, but Paul prays over the church in Ephesus. And he says, God, I want you to enlighten the eyes of their heart. This is a deeper kind of sight. This is a vision of of, of the spirit, to be able to see spiritual truth beyond the physical reality. Enlighten the eyes of their heart, O God, that they may know you, that they may know, know the depths of your calling and the power that is at work within them. That's what God wants to do with us, Anchor Church. That's what he's speaking to us right now. God wants us to see that he has more for us. And as we see God's vision, we focus less on our inadequacies and all of our excuses about why we can't do it. And we become pliable in God's hands. We become like clay that is pliable, that is bendable, that, is, that, that God can shape and mold into something both useful and beautiful. Sometimes that shaping, though, doesn't feel like a lot of fun. If any of you have been Christians for a while, you know that it's not all sunshine and roses. It doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to go just right. 
that everything is, is going to be just fine all of the time. You're going to face some challenges like we all have. You're going to face some difficulty. You might even get angry. You might get frustrated. You might feel lonely. You might feel hurt. We've all been through these very real seasons because sometimes we feel that pressure, the pressure of the shaping, of the molding, the bending, the hardship. But part of the hope that we have and part of the hope that God speaks into Jeremiah's life when he experienced these same things is that God is always at work. Even if the difficult situation that you're facing is your fault, like you made a bad decision that brought this about, or if it's completely not your fault, like it's, it's just a part of be, living in this broken world that we experience these things, the hope that we have is that nothing we ever suffer or experience or feel is in vain. That's beautiful. That is so encouraging. Because in, in Romans 8.28, and many of you know this scripture, but sometimes it's just so good to be reminded of it. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, God loves you, he cares about you, and he's called you. And so because there's a calling on your life, and because he's involved in your story, it doesn't matter how much brokenness you've suffered or how many difficult things you've gone through, what you can know today is that God uses those things to produce something rich, something expensive, and something effective through your life. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be nearly as effective right now today as a parent, as a friend, as a community group leader, as somebody that's making an impact in this city if it wasn't for some of the difficult things that you've gone through, which is why James, and we all dislike this verse, says that you should count it all joy when you suffer trials of various kinds, because this is doing something in you. It's producing maturity so that you may be complete, and, uh, you know, complete lacking nothing. This is what God does through these difficult moments. But we often forget this. Like, it's easy to preach that on a Sunday, but when you're feeling it, it's so quick, you know, we're so quick to forget that God actually is there and ultimately working all things together for good. And so often what we do is we resist the process. God has a process for us and he's going to use those things, but rather than, than standing, which God calls us to do, to be still, to, to sit at his feet, to, to just rest in the finished work of the cross, just to be before God and allow things that are not okay to just not be okay for a while while God does his work. We get about fixing this thing, rectifying it, you know, chasing the next plan and the next strategy and, and even going to God, telling him how he's supposed to fix it. We resist that. I've got three young boys, and I don't know, for those of you that have had young children, how many of you have ever tried to clean a child's, like, wound, like a scraped knee or, or take a splinter out of the, I've got boys that are constantly got bumps and bruises and scrapes and splinters, and so many times when I'm trying to help them, because I know what will happen to the splinter that is in their flesh if it doesn't get removed. I know what that sore will look like if it gets infected. You know, I'm trying to help them, although the help doesn't feel pleasant at that time, it's ultimately going to be good for them. And if you have small kids, you'll know that they'll run away, they'll claw, they'll kick, they'll scream, they'll fight, they'll do whatever. And you're like, but it's going to get infected. They're like, I don't care. Like, but you, you could lose a limb. It's okay, I have another one, you know? And we're like that when God begins to clean our wounds and when he begins to dress our wounds and when he begins to remove things from our lives that are actually ultimately gonna harm us. So many times we'd rather live with the splinter or live with the infection 
than just be pliable in God's hands. You see, this is where it becomes real. Something that's authentic is authentic. Something that's real is real. We can't fake this. You either have a relationship with Jesus in which you are surrendered to Him, and you're allowing Him to speak into your life, to change, to clean, to heal, to deliver, to disrupt sometimes, to push you beyond your comfort sometimes, to do what's good for you in spite of what you think is good for you. You either trust God and have that genuine relationship with Him, or you don't have that kind of relationship with Him yet. Then it's something far less authentic, something perhaps far more religious. It's not what God has for us. That's how we respond. Jeremiah, we look at these guys in the Bible and we think, yeah, but they didn't suffer anything like us. You know, they didn't go through our hardships. They didn't face our economy. They didn't, you know, go through all these things. They just had these perfect lives. They're heroes of faith. I'm sure they never struggled or doubted or, you know, had difficult moments. But what we see in Jeremiah's life is just because he was called with, by God doesn't preclude him from hardship or from facing difficult moments. In fact, when there is a genuine calling on your life, and I believe that there is, then God will use difficult moments strategically in your life to shape you. It creates the necessary pressure to mold something out of your life as God begins to push us beyond our comfort zones and shape us into something far more fully developed than we've ever been. He reveals His grace to us in that. This has often been a very encouraging quote for me by C.S. Lewis. He said, Hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. Hardships often prepare people. It's the school that we go through to have what we need in our faith. As our faith is tested, as our resolve and our grit is, and our endurance is, is strengthened, we're able to then start to fulfill God's call. So last week we looked at how God speaks to the people of Israel saying, I don't want you to just be religious on the outside. I want a real relationship with you. They had gone through this reform uh, through the King Josiah. They had, they had uh, cleaned up the temple and, and driven out all the sorcerers and the cult prostitutes and all the false worship in Israel. And there was this massive revival in the land of Israel. And Josiah, the young king, is at the heart of that along with Jeremiah. And so everybody's positive. Everybody's just wanting to be positive. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to, even if there's something that's truly not right. They didn't want to talk about that. They just want to, just be positive. Just be positive and it'll go away, whatever's wrong, right? But God isn't satisfied with that kind of reform. He doesn't want us to have an outward reform without having a genuine inward reform. God wants to start by reviving our hearts before anything changes on the outside. He works from the inside out. And so even though everybody's going, everything is fine, everything's fine, we're having a great time, there's revival in Israel, and people are celebrating at this news, and all the religious leaders are heroes, they're, they're famous, you know, they give high fives in the street, they maybe sign autographs, who knows what they did, but they, you know, they're, they're, they're heroes because they're leading this great revival. And then God sends Jeremiah with a message going, I, I can see that you're having a great time. I can see that you're, you're celebrating this great reform, but your hearts are still far from me. Because like, I'm not satisfied with just an outward sense of relationship or appearance of genuine relationship. I want something real. And I don't know why we so often take our relationship with God and make it so different from our relationship with one another. But how many of you would want to be married to somebody who doesn't really love you, but they, very, they act like they do. 
How many of you say, that's the kind of marriage I want one day? I want somebody that in their hearts doesn't really care about me, but at least they act perfectly all the time. Nobody would want that. Why do we think God would be okay with that? He doesn't want us just to show up on a Sunday and have a great like worship session. Oh God, my life is reformed. I, you know, there's peace, there's everything. Everything's just fine, God. When really it isn't. And when really you're not here to genuinely connect with him. You haven't opened your heart up for that. And so God sends Jeremiah to the elders of Israel saying, you're all having a great time, but you're not pliable in my hands. You're not allowing me to shape you. It's not a real relationship. And when clay isn't pliable and he takes a clay pot and he smashes it on the ground, he goes, this is what is the result of a heart that is hardened to the voice of God. It breaks under pressure. God's saying, turn to me today if you hear my voice. Do not harden your heart. And so while they're having this, you know, amazing time and, you know, shouting revival and peace and all these things in Israel, Jeremiah comes out and, and he preaches this, this really, you know, this message that seems so negative. And they give him a nickname. They call him Danger Everywhere. Terror on every side. Oh, here comes Jeremiah. We're all having a great time. We're in the temple. We're doing, oh, but here comes old Jeremiah. And he's going to be like terror on every side, everybody. Everybody's in trouble now again. And they begin to mock him. It turns out they really disliked that message that he had to share, the smashing of the pot. They're like, so dramatic, Jeremiah. Just calm down. Everything's fine. And they didn't like that. So we finished there in Jeremiah 19 last week as he smashes that clay pot. Look at how they respond. Jeremiah 20, verse 1. Now Pashur, the priest, the son of Emma, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord. So this guy is, is the boss of the temple. He is the lead pastor, senior pastor. He's the guy that's probably the favorite preacher. He's the main guy, and he's leading the revival. He's famous. Come on, he's the guy who's the most positive. Every week he, he gives an inspiring 25-minute message. Every week he gets up there and he just shares something. Oh, we feel so good. And they go. And he's like, and here comes Jeremiah with his smashing of clay pots and his drama and his, but God wants your heart nonsense and we should all be surrendered. And Jeremiah, we're having a great time. And you're disrupting it. And so he heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. And then Peshur beat Jeremiah the prophet. I was saying in the first service, I'm so glad that our church doesn't do that with me. <laughs> like, you know, I was having a great time. I was ready to be inspired. And that pastor came with a message that was slightly challenging. We're meeting him in the parking lot. That's it. We're going to beat him up, right? This is what they do with Jeremiah. And they put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. So he, not only does he get beaten, he gets put in the stocks like a criminal at the gate to the temple. And, and all day long, they mock him. They revile him. They spit on him. They, oh, he has danger on every side, old Jeremiah with his, with his cutthroat messages. Jeremiah speaks God's word. And then the most popular religious leader in Israel at that time beats him up and humiliates him and mocks him, putting him in the stocks. Authentic, though, is authentic. Real is real. And we want to have the kind of relationship with God that is real, not just positive. You know, we can say that we have peace, peace in our relationships, peace in our lives, peace with God, and we do through the blood of Jesus. We have peace with God. 
But if we're saying all of those things while at the same time just simply avoiding the painful subjects, is it genuine peace? Do we have genuine peace in our lives? And again, this is something that we can just bring to the level of our human relationships. You know, I love my wife. My wife is one of the most encouraging people I've ever met. Um, she is always speaking courage into me, which is really what encourage means. Um, she's always supporting me, listening to me, hearing me out. Um, you know, it's one of the, just the greatest supports that I have in my life, engaging with me. And, and hopefully I do the same for her. Um, and so we're positive about each other. But how many of you would agree that our relationship, as positive as that seems, would be lacking, wouldn't be completely authentic if she didn't also have the space to sometimes contradict me or to confront me or to authentically approach me and say, this is something that you need to be aware of. She needs to be able to challenge me and correct me and address me in order for it to be an authentic relationship. Because otherwise, at the very least, it would just be severely lacking. And in the same way, we have so often turned our relationship with God into being about all the positive things that God is going to say to me. Oh, God is for me and not against me. Come on, I can be one of those pastors. I can do it. We can do it. It'll be fun. You know, I am the head and not the tail. I am above and not beneath. I am blessed going in and I am blessed coming out. Come on, that's, people want to hear that. I just want to know all about the positive things that God feels about me. And make no mistake, God is incredibly positive about you as a result of the blood of Jesus, right? He is for you. Those things are true. But that also means that unless your, God, unless your relationship with God was severely lacking, unless it was less than authentic, that at some points God is going to stand before you and say, this thing is not what I have for you. I'm challenging you on your view on this because I have more for you. Come on, God has got to be able, if He is the one that is shaping and molding and changing us, and we are surrendered to Him, and we are in an authentic relationship, then surely at some point God must be able to say, hey, I need that to stop. I need this to change. I'm going to be there. I'm going to help you make the change, but I need you to trust in me about this. Doesn't that sound like a, a real relationship? But because we don't want that, we take all, just everything positive I receive, everything challenging, no thank you. And that doesn't lead us into the best life that God has for us. God must be able to challenge and correct and address our lives. And it's grace to us. It's grace that God would do that. He is a father. He's a true father. God calls us to himself, something authentic. But how can he mold us if we wouldn't surrender ourselves to him? So Peshur's response to Jeremiah is essentially this. He goes, hey, Jeremiah, I'm fine. These guys are fine. We're fine. Everything is fine. You don't need to come and, 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 and bother us with these stories about surrendering to God. Jeremiah disturbs the delicate facade that they had created under the headline, everything is fine. And part of the role of a prophet, and even the role of a preacher, even the role of a pastor, even part of my role, is not just to smooth things over, so everything is fine, but to make things truth, truly right. We don't want to just say everything is okay. And so even from our leadership as pastors, like we love you. We care about your life. 
And so we don't go digging through people's histories and finding out what we need to address, but when a situation comes up within our community, if we love somebody, we talk to them about it. We say, this is what God has for you. This needs to change. And if people are offended by that, it means that their relationship with us as leaders was never a genuine one. They wanted what they could get, like consumerism. They wanted what they could get, but don't challenge me, pastor. I'll beat you up in the parking lot. I'll learn from the Bible. But we want to be more than that, don't we, church? Come on, we're not perfect, but we want to be something that at the very least is authentic, that's genuine. We, we don't want to just have peace by avoiding painful subjects. We want true peace. This ends Jeremiah up in the stocks and He's humiliated, but he's not intimidated. He doesn't like any of it. So just to, don't make a mistake here. He's not like, oh, I'm so blessed to be suffering for the Lord. He hates this. He hates it. But he's not afraid of it. Why? Because the most important thing in Jeremiah's life was his relationship with God. The true fear, the only thing that Jeremiah really feared was to have worship without astonishment, religion without commitment, getting what he wanted while at the same time missing out on what God wanted for him, living a life of comfort rather than a life of truth. That is what truly scared Jeremiah. And I must tell you that it, that, that is a massive fear for me as well. I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and go, I chose comfort over truth. I've got to be faithful to the Scriptures because the alternative is just unthinkable. And we... Instead of just saying, my life is fine, everything's fine, I'm good, everything's good, come on, I'm positive, I had a great Sunday in church, I'm going to go out, I'm going to... Are you really fine, Anchor Church? Are you really fine? And if you're not, can we be honest about it? Can we have a real relationship with God and with each other? What does Jeremiah do? How does he respond to the hardship and the anger and the frustration? We see in the next verses, Jeremiah 20, verse 7. First thing he does... He prays. Oh Lord, you've deceived me. Sounds like he's pretty angry here. Like you have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than me and you've prevailed, right? You've wrestled me, you've bullied me, you fooled me into this whole thing. I've become a laughing stock all day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout. Violence and destruction. He's like, can you just give me a positive message for once, right? Like, Free ice cream, everyone. Like, why does it always have to be violence and destruction? For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. I can't hold it in, what God has for me. For I hear many whispering. Terror is on every side. So he walks down the street. And people go, oh, Jeremiah, terror on every side. Here comes Jeremiah, so dramatic. Denounce him, let's denounce him. Say, all my close friends watching for my fall. Like, they, they just dislike this guy. He's just ruining the party. So what does Jeremiah do in response? He prays. It's one thing to say a quick prayer before you eat a meal or before you go to bed at night. But this is something so much deeper and bigger than that. This is praying in the midst of your pain, praying in the midst of your frustration, praying in the midst of your hurt. This is that kind of gut-level, honest prayer that God desires to hear from us. He doesn't mind if you complain, as long as you're complaining to Him. 
as long as you're sharing that argument with him. And in that moment in Jeremiah's life, and that's what we're going to look at today, there's an exchange that happens. In the intimacy of prayer, there is an exchange that takes place. God does something with what we bring to him, and he gives us something in return. He takes our hardship. The Bible says, cast your burdens unto Jesus because he cares for you. And as you cast your burdens, as you, as you go to him when you're weary and heavy laden, he says, I will give you rest. I'll teach you. I'll strengthen you. So he takes our burdens and gives us strength. It's not that God removes the hardships. It's not that he plucks us right out of the difficulty. But he gives us the grace and the strength to deal with those things, the perspective that we need. So we see Jeremiah go through the exchange here. By verse 11, he says this, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. Immediately, there's an exchange that he experiences. And this is amazing insight into the life of Jeremiah. Often when we hear about truly great people, you know, those people that are undeniably great or living great lives, you know, just so different from ours, having, you know, massive influence across, across the world, it, it piques some curiosity within us. You know, when we hear about those that have shaped history and are changing the world, we always are asking the question, what do their lives really look like? Like behind the scenes, when they're not in front of the cameras, when they're not on the screen, when they're not standing behind the podium, when they're not, you know, preaching to an audience, what, what, what do these people do from day to day? Like what do they have for breakfast? What do they do in their downtime? You know, what's their routine before they go to bed? And, and, and so interviewers and, and social media and all these things. This is why, you know, famous people have millions of followers because everybody wants to see when you're not on the movie, well, how does you, what does your life look like? And in Jeremiah, we can ask that with this, this incredibly mighty man of God that God used so powerfully in this moment in Israel's history. What does his life look like when he's not preaching to the audience? When he's outside of the public eye, what does he do? How does he live? The book of Jeremiah is actually amazing. It gives us more biographical detail of Jeremiah's private life than any other book of prophecy in Scripture. And that's why we love it so much. And what we see Jeremiah do in his secret life is pray. Turns out Jeremiah's secret life is a prayer life. He connects with God. He has intimacy and relationship with God. Sometimes I think we spend so much time talking about God, trying to rationalize his actions, trying to figure out what he's doing, trying to, trying to predict what he'll do next, instead of just talking to him. Think about that. We ask all these questions to our friends and our pastors. Honestly, that's why people often ask pastors, you know, what do you do Monday to Saturday since you only work on Sundays, right? Can I tell you what we do most of the time? Answer your stupid questions. Because everybody goes, oh, I don't know what God is doing. And so they must talk to the pastor. They must talk to the, the community group leader. They must talk, and, and we're here to help. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I help my boy. My boys are six. They've just learned to tie their shoes. And sometimes I'll still help them. But if I'm still helping them tie their shoes when they're 30, how many of you agree something's wrong, right? So you've been in church for years and you still can't hear from God yourself? It's because you're too busy talking about God and not talking to God. You have the access. You have the word. You have the spirit. Talk to God. Find out for yourself what he wants to say. You don't need me. I'm not a middleman. There's only one mediator. It's Christ. 
I'm just here to, sh- to tell you, turn to Christ. That's what we do from Monday to Saturday. And we'd be a lot less busy if people would just take their faith and their relationship with God as something that they take ownership of and begin to walk in. God is not a subject to be talked about. He's a person to be talked to. And prayer is the attention that we give to the one that attends to us. That's what happens when your relationship with God becomes something supremely important in your life. If your relationship with God is genuinely important to you, then you would understand that prayer is that time that you're giving God exclusive attention. I want to speak to you, Lord. I want to hear from you firsthand. I want to experience your presence. I I want you to encourage me, to strengthen me, to shape me, to mold me. I'm not happy with secondhand relationship. I want to know you, God. And once we do that, we're expressing our conviction that our relationship with God is immensely important to us. This is the source of Jeremiah's personal intensity and incorruptible integrity. This is how he got to be Jeremiah. It wasn't that he had a perfect life. It wasn't that he never suffered. It's that he was honest and he prayed. He was raw and authentic about it. The first place Jeremiah turned to when he was hurt or angry or disappointed was to God in prayer. I want to look at another example of of where this happens just a little bit earlier on in Jeremiah 15. Listen to this prayer. Jeremiah 15 verse 15. He says, you know where I am, God. Remember what I'm doing here. How many of you have felt that God has forgotten you? Like he's just got busy with like world events or, I don't know, stuff out in the Middle East, and he's just completely forgotten that down here in Joburg, you're still trying to get by in life, right? You know where I am, God, here in Joburg, hello? Remember what I'm doing here. Take my side against my detractors. Help me, God. Don't stand back while they ruin me. Just look at the abuse that I'm taking. We've all felt this way. This is essentially Jeremiah saying, God, I know that you're the God of patience and that you're the God of perfect timing, and you're, but while you do that, these people are waiting to kill me. I've just been locked in the stocks. They're mocking me. This stuff's going on. I'm taking abuse. Please don't be all patient while I'm taking abuse. Act, God. Deliver on your promises. Help me. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Just look at the abuse I'm taking. When your words showed up, I ate them, swallowed them whole. What a feast. What a delight I took in being yours, O God of heaven's armies. I never joined the party crowd and their laughter and their fun. Led by you, I went off by myself. You filled me with indignation. Their sin had me seething. But why? Why this chronic pain? This ever-worsening wound and no healing in sight. You're nothing, God. It sounds like Jeremiah is a little bit intense here. He's angry. You're nothing, God, but a mirage. A lovely oasis in the distance, and then nothing. Come on, can we be honest? How many of us have felt that way? Oh, the promises of God, healing, restoration, deliverance, my husband, my wife, nothing, God. Where is it? When's it happening? I'm angry. Jeremiah spills his guts here. He's he's brutally honest. You see, prayer isn't just for when you're feeling pious and religious on a Sunday morning. God wants you to turn to him in the midst of your pain and your frustration. Jeremiah's afraid here. He's, He's being... His life is in danger. He's frantically calling out to God. 
Your patience is killing me. We see here a few different emotions that Jeremiah goes through and how he turns to prayer in the midst of those emotions. And I want to tell you this morning that God wants you to turn to prayer in the midst of those same emotions. What's the first emotion that we see? Loneliness. Jeremiah prays through his loneliness. I never joined the party crowd in all their laughter and fun. Like I could have gone from being terror at every side to life of the party. I could have just toned down my message. I could have agreed with all the religious leaders. I could have just said, no, 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 everything is fine. And I could have just gotten in with the crowd. I could have just had some more fun. But God, led by you, I went off by myself. He's lonely. He's like, I don't even have friends anymore. People are just waiting for me to fall. And it's all because of the truth that, that you put in my heart, God. I'm feeling lonely. But at the same time, I cannot compromise the truth that I have in my heart. So he feels stuck. Sometimes not compromising is lonely business. We see that Jeremiah prays through his hurt. But why this chronic pain? This ever-worsening wound and no healing in sight. Jeremiah cared so much about the mission that God gave him and the people that he was called to turn towards God, that when they rejected God and rejected him, it became like a chronic pain to him, an ever-worsening wound. Every bone and muscle in his body felt their rejection. He cares for them, and they hate him. It's like an ever-worsening wound. So he prays through his hurt. He prays through his, through his anger. You're nothing, God, but a mirage, a lovely oasis in the distance, and then nothing. We see earlier on in Jeremiah 2, right in the beginning, he's a young prophet. God's called him. 2 verse 13, Jeremiah preaches a message. And what he preaches is that God is the fountain of fresh flowing waters. And now he goes back on his own preaching and says, yeah, I thought you were a fountain of fresh flowing waters, but really that was just a mirage. You know, the mirage idea of walking in the desert, being parched and thirsty, and then seeing a body of water, relief for your thirst. And you run, there's palm trees, and, and you run there, and, and, and you get to what is supposed to be an oasis, and it ends up just being more sand. So he's saying, I thought you were the fountain of fresh flowing waters. But now, where is the delivery of the promise? Where is the fulfillment of your word? He cries out against God in anger. In anger. You, you make promises, God, but you do not deliver. Just look at the abuse that I'm taking. You see, rather than being a blight on our faith, the measure of your true faith is whether or not you can pray to God in those moments. If you can be honest with God, it's because you believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who go to Him. It is a measure of our faith when we pray honestly. Skeptics argue about God. Believers prefer to argue with Him. The mighty Jeremiah, solid as a concrete block wall. What does he look like in prayer? How does the mighty Jeremiah sound in prayer? The answer, scared, lonely, angry, hurt. Does that surprise us? We've all felt these things, the loneliness, the hurt, the anger. But here's my question to you this morning. 
Do you pray them? Do you pray your anger? Do you pray your hurt? Do you pray your frustration? Do you pray your disappointment? Because Jeremiah prayed them. What Jeremiah did is he took everything that he experienced and he set it in relation to his walk with God, in relation to his, his intimate knowledge of God and God's nature and God's character, this relationship that he had to a living and saving and, and, and gracious God. And in that moment, once again, we see something begin to happen, that exchange that we mentioned earlier. Jeremiah stops speaking, but the prayer continues. I want you to know today that prayer does not end when you end. Because God is not just an audience in your prayer. He is a partner. And so Jeremiah speaks honestly and then listens expectantly. How many of us do that? No, because so many of our prayers are not even authentic. We're just going, God, this is what I want. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wait. I want to speak to you. I want to shape you. I want to, I want to respond to you. And he responds to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15 verse 19. The first thing he says is, take back those words and I'll take you back. Then you'll stand tall before me. This was, in essence, the core of Jeremiah's message. This is what he'd been preaching to Israel for years. Take back and you'll stand. Turn to me and I'll strengthen you. Repent and I'll restore to you. The word repentance in Hebrew is teshuva, which means that you're going in one direction and you remember the Lord and you return to Him again. It means to return. In the Greek, it means to change your mind, to be renewed in your thinking, to set your heart and your faith and your belief again on who God is rather than on what you're doing. And so ultimately he says, I hear you, Jeremiah, but I want you to take that back. I want you to turn back to me. I want you to repent. And as you repent, you will stand tall. He preaches Jeremiah's message back to him. This is what you've been saying to Israel for years, and I'm going to say it to you. Turn to me. Trust in me again. Even though you're going through hardship, even though it's difficult right now, trust in me and I'll make you stand tall. I won't indulge you in it. I hear you, Jeremiah. All the loneliness, the hurt and the anger, I understand. But I'm not going to indulge you in it. Thank God he doesn't indulge us. I won't allow you to wallow in your self-pity and get stuck there because I have more for you. Turn away from it. Repent, and I'll restore you. Our part in prayer is to just be honest, right? There's no formula here. Just be honest with God. But God's part is to save us and restore us. Before we go into prayer, we often feel, you know, the pain and the anger and the frustration. How many of you have done that? You're feeling angry, and you go to God, and you pray, and five minutes later, you feel so silly because God brings perspective back. Your faith and your trust in Him, all of a sudden you go, oh, I don't know why I was so worried about that back then. It's impossible to step into authentic prayer and leave the same, feeling the same way. Because God confronts our emotions with the truth of who He is. That's what happens in prayer. So God calls us to renew our minds. That's His response to Jeremiah. He carries on with His response in the second part of that verse. He says, use words truly and well. Don't stoop to cheap whining. Then, but only then, you'll speak for me. Let your words change them 
Don't change your words to suit them. Don't compromise, Jeremiah. Remember why, what I've called you to. Don't be scared or afraid of them to the point that you begin to tone down your message in order to appease the masses. But so far, Jeremiah's words have yielded no results. All they've gotten him, all he's gotten for his efforts is a whole bunch of insults and trouble and derision that came from others. And God ultimately just says to Jeremiah, hey, reestablish your priorities here. Don't worry about what they say. Your life is about speaking the truth of God into this moment in history. That's what you're here for. He's reestablishing. God reestablishes Jeremiah's priorities. Priorities are reestablished in prayer. Some people think that a priority is something that you just establish once. Okay, God is a priority. Church is a priority. But how many of you know that even though you might write on a piece of paper, if you wrote a manifesto for your life, and you would say, God is my number one priority, and, and, and being a part of building the local church is my number one priority, how many of you know you have to reestablish that priority when your alarm goes off at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning? Priorities aren't a once and for all thing. It's something you have to do daily. How do we constantly reestablish our priorities, our focus in life? We do it through prayer. We do it by meeting God. You see, some people have a memory verse or even a life verse. How many of you have a life verse? Like front of your Bible, that's the verse of my life. You can have a memory verse all you like. It's not going to do in your heart what you need it to do. It's because it's not a formula. What you need is you need to encounter the presence of the living God and you need to have the Holy Spirit speak that truth to your heart, reestablishing your priorities supernaturally. It's not just a formula you can do without a relationship with God. There is no context in which we get to have what God has for our lives without having God. You cannot have the Christian life without having Christ. There is no life outside of Christ. So we need to engage Him through prayer and allow Him to constantly, in the midst of our changing moods and our, and our emotions and our circumstances, we need to have God and His Spirit bring the priority back that He is our number one. So God reestablishes. He calls us to repentance. He reestablishes our priorities. And then as Jeremiah continues to listen, he hears this in the next verse, Jeremiah 15, 20. He says, I'll turn you into a steel wall, a thick steel wall, impregnable. They'll attack you, but they won't put a dent in you because I'm at your side defending and delivering. Now, we've heard this before, right? Jeremiah 1, all the way back, 118, God says that to him. Impregnable as a castle, immovable as a steel post, solid as a concrete block wall. Now God just says the same thing again. You know why? Even though our priorities and our circumstances and our emotions shift, the promise of God doesn't. It's the same promise. It's the same promise. Like, you know, if you need healing in your life, it's not like God has to make a new promise of healing. He just points you back to the promise he's already made. The healing and the restoration and the deliverance and the, and the future and the influence and all the things that God has promised. He doesn't make new ones every time you go to Him in prayer, but He renews your mind about the promises He's already made. Oh yes, I remember now, God. I remember your promise. I fix my eyes on your promise and on your faithfulness to that promise. This is how God renews us through prayer. 
Everything God said then, he says still, and the promise never changes. It's just that sometimes we need to hear it again. And that's why you need to pray. Because it's not that God needs to make a new promise to your life. It's that you need to be reminded of the promise that he has already made and be renewed in that. Prayer is the encounter. We need to encounter God daily, the voice of God daily. And prayer is that encounter. Situations change, but God does not. In prayer, we're restored, our priorities are reestablished, and we are renewed in our faith and in our commitment. And this is something that you cannot fake. You cannot fake by showing up here on a Sunday. There has to be something leading up to your worship on a Sunday and leading out of what happens here on a Sunday. And if it's not authentic, if you don't have a real relationship with God, that's okay. We're here to help you take those steps. But one thing that will never happen, will never work, is for us to pretend. It's for us to act like we have this deep relationship with God. You notice sometimes we see people and they're nowhere in church and serving and in, in their walk with Jesus. We can just see these guys are all over the place. And then all of a sudden there's an outreach and they show up and they do this amazing thing. And we're all like, wow, moment of brilliance. Maybe we we you know, assessed the situation all wrong. Maybe they were these deep Christians all along. 99.9% .9 of the time, that brilliance in that moment, one outreach, one worship song, one Sunday morning, one community group, whatever, it doesn't translate into consistent, a consistent walk with God. You can be brilliant in a moment, but God wants us to be consistent over a lifetime. And that for that, there's no shortcuts. There's no, the only way you can get there is to actually have what you proclaim to have, a relationship with God. It has to be real. It looks like something daily. It looks like something you truly believe. It looks like something that's shaping you. It looks like something that's challenging you. It looks like something that's breaking parts off of you. It sometimes looks like praying through hurt and praying through hardship and praying through anger. It looks like something authentic. Anchor Church, we can't fake this. We can't show up on a Sunday, put up our hands and go, I'm fine, everything's fine, we're fine. We need to be honest before God if we are going to run the race that is set before us. Not just take on the posture of victory, but run the race we've been called to run. There's no shortcuts to becoming who God intended for us to be. So we want to have an honest walk with God. I want to encourage you to pray honestly. Don't wait for the perfect moment and the music and the angels and the kids are asleep. And the, Pray wherever you are, whatever you're feeling. Talk to God. Persistent prayers are what brought Jeremiah to human wholeness and spiritual sensitivity. What we do in secret determines who will be in public. And prayer is the secret place where we connect with God, developing a life that is thoroughly authentic and deeply human. So when we started this series and we said we were going to show you how to live your best life, I'm sure many of you are like, just give me the secret, just give me the key, just give me that one thing I can do one time and then I'll be great. Unfortunately, if that was the case, we would all just be there. But this actually requires a journey and that journey requires you encountering God in reality every day 
as you build your trust and your faith in Him and live from the place of who He's called you to be and who He is in your life. Amen? Amen. We want to have an authentic walk with God. I want to encourage you to stand with me this morning as we pray together.